Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 24th of October, 2012, and our special guest is returning. This is Denise Pope. Welcome, Denise. Thanks, Steve. There, you handled the microphone perfectly. Denise is here to talk to us about challenge success. Uh, which is sort of a follow-up to our last interview last year. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for their support. I am on my Hack Your Education tour. Next stop is Boston next week. These are community conversations around education. For more information, go to hackyoureducation.com. We did have some terrific conferences in the last couple of months, our worldwide large virtual conferences. We had the Learning 2.0 conference in August. All of those recordings are up at learning20.com. Just an incredible set of sessions. Part of Connected Educator Month, well worth looking at if you haven't seen it yet. Also, our Future of Libraries conference was in early October, and that's Library 2.012, thanks to San Jose State University. Those recordings are up as well, and also just terrific sessions. I'm increasingly a library fanboy, having fallen into that role, but just love the the work that's being done. And then, of course, the Global Education Conference, five days, 24 hours a day, all free, coming up November 12th to 17th. If you don't know about this, it's really a blast. Go to globaleducationconference.com. There's still time to uh, submit to present. And, of course, uh, we expect thousands and thousands of participants from all over the world, which is really a lot of fun in the third year. If you are uh, interested, we have some great interviews coming up tomorrow night. Jamie McMillan talks about her book on legendary learning, famous homeschoolers' guide to self-directed excellence. This should be really interesting. It's part of my continued look at the world of homeschooling and the potential lessons for uh, regular traditional education, uh, in large part because of a lot of the language becoming very similar, and, and I believe there's a lot to learn there. Cal Newport comes back to talk about his new book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, to make the argument that we shouldn't be focusing on uh, passions for students in the way that we're thinking about. Um, anyway, lots of fun there. Charles Hayes is new. That should be a lot of fun. I read a book of his from the 1980s and reached out to him. and. Uh, he doesn't want to talk about that book. He says he's uh, too ashamed to even open the pages anymore, but we're going to talk about his view of education, which I think is unique and valuable. Um, if you've missed any of our shows, they are all recorded. Last night, Susie Boss talked to us about the innovative school, bringing innovation to school, empowering students to thrive in a changing world. That was really fun. Kirsten Olson talked about her book, Wounded by School. Blake Bowles was on before that on his book, Better Than College. Tom Vanderhaar on Getting Smart. Anyway, over 300 recordings now up and available. Hopefully there's something there that's of value to you. This is when you get to tell us where you're participating from. Look to the left of the map for some icons. You're looking for the second one down, which is the star. Double click on it and then place it on the map. I'm in Park City, Utah today, where it snowed four inches last night. It was just a lovely morning to wake up to. Hopefully there will be more snow in this ski resort town this year than there was last year. Feel free to shout out in the chat as well.
Bill, your, consist your consistent presence keeps us an international interview series. Thanks for being here. There's someone else there in Southeast Asia. Wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad that you've taken the time to do so, and we appreciate it. There is a Mighty Bell session for this room. Mighty Bell is Gina Bianchini's nose project. As I did for her with Ning, I'm her educational consultant, and I just love the work that she does. This is a content and curation service, and I created a space for tonight's interview. So I put up a couple of Nisa's links there, and feel free to go in and continue the conversation there after the interview. So Denise, we touched a little bit on challenge success in the last interview, but didn't really get a chance to drill down. So I'm really delighted that we're getting the chance to do so tonight. Um, can you give us an overview of what the program is? Sure. So almost 10 years ago, it's really nine and a half years ago, we started this program pretty much based on my book. Um, I shadowed five high school students for a year. And these were high-achieving students who had ulcers and who were cheating and who were really not engaged in school for the right reason. They were um, kind of chasing the grades. And someone at the Maiden Health Center on Stanford campus called me into his office and said, we have the aftermath of the kids in your book here at Stanford at one of the best universities. And what should we do about it? Let's come up with an intervention. So we put together an intervention. It used to be called SOS, Stressed Out Students, until we were told that we needed a more positive name and the signs of suicide people were not very happy with us on the East Coast. So we changed our name. We are Challenge Success. And we work with families and schools to improve the social and emotional um, health of kids and get to get them more engaged with learning. So we put on uh, conferences for schools, workshops for teachers, we do parent education for parents, we do a whole bunch of research, um, all in the hope to get healthier kids, mentally healthier, physically healthier, and much more engaged in real learning instead of just chasing the grades. So Denise, I want to ask this question carefully. But I, um, I, I'm going to bring up the website right now. Um, I really love the material there. And I, I found a lot of it really valuable for me, both as a parent and somebody talking about education. But I was a little bit intrigued because, to some degree, it feels as though it's counter to most of the narratives that we encounter in education right now. And uh, you know, it sort of harkens back to a much more holistic, wholesome view of what learning is and its impact on the individual. You're at a really prominent university that prides itself on sort of cutting edge work. Do you ever find it awkward in terms of justifying the work you do with colleagues who are looking at much more esoteric topics? Yes. <laughs> so, well, there's a couple of, of awkward moments here, and, uh, and I can fill you in on that. So one is, here we are promoting the whole child. We're promoting resilient, healthy, successful kids. And 
a lot of people out there blame the college admissions system in the U.S. right now for helping to create the stressed out, grade grubbing, unhealthy kids. And they look at me and they say, well, you're from Stanford. The challenge success is at Stanford. Isn't Stanford a big part of the problem? So that's one of the sort of tensions that we have is that, yes, you know, in the sense that Stanford is an elite university, that they have an admissions office that only admits, you know, 7% of their, you know, 30,000 applicants or whatever it is, um, often there's a misunderstanding that you have to have perfect grades, that you have to take a million extracurriculars, and um, Stanford wants these little robot grade-grubbing students. Uh, if you talk to Stanford admissions, that's actually not the case. But, that, but that's, that's one of the myths out there. The other myth out there is, um, you know, we're not competing with the global economy, and um, we're trying to get our test scores up in the U.S., and we want to hold more kids accountable, and schools are not being rigorous enough, and um, are you at odds with that, which was sort of your first question, Steve. And, and, and our answer to that is if you really look at the literature, more and more people are saying we need kids with 21st century skills. We need kids who are creative, who know how to collaborate, who can think deeply and critically, who know how to solve interdisciplinary complex problems, and who, bottom line, are healthy and able to take care of themselves and be resilient. So we're actually not at odds with sort of the rhetoric when you, when you go a little bit deeper. We are at odds with the let's get our test scores up for the sake of competing, uh, because we don't necessarily believe that that's, that's the case. And there's certainly professors at the university who will call me out on that. But there's others who are absolutely on our side saying, you're right, we need uh, a workforce that's ready for the 21st century. And the kinds of skills that challenge success is espousing are the skills our kids need. So I don't want to oversimplify a complex topic. And these are my words, not yours. But I'm intrigued at sort of the political narrative around achievement and competitiveness or, or let's say economic health of a country. Because it feels to me as though there's sort of an ABC pathway. And uh, we're at point A and we want to get to point C, which is a healthy economy and success and accomplishment. And it feels like we often sort of bypass the B, which is, um, giving individuals an, an ability to think at higher levels and to lead more fulfilling lives. But it feels like we kind of skip past that right to the international competitiveness. Does it bother you that oftentimes education is seen as um, helping the country rather than helping the individual? Yes, um, and yet I understand that philosophy. I mean, gosh, listen to the debates, right? Uh, we need a well-educated citizenry that's going to actually keep our country um, more peaceful, that's going to get the economy better. I mean, so there is, it has to be a combination, right? Education is a public service in that sense. What bothers me more is this notion that we are confusing rigor, deep thinking, understanding the kind of workforce that we need with load or grades or test scores. So there's a lot of people will say, just work the kids harder and we'll have a better citizenry. Or 
you know, push push more accountability, teach to the test, and all will be well. And and that that is leaving out a very important part, which is wait. You know, the kids in Shanghai and and the Shanghai professors have said this to me. They're great at filling in bubbles. They're great at taking tests. They're great at thinking inside the box. Ask them to go outside the box, solve a rigorous, complex, interdisciplinary problem, and they fall apart. They will not compete. Okay, so why is the word success upside down in the logo? Well, <laughs> so that's, that's our little play on success, right? So we basically are saying, look, what some people think of the traditional version of success is get all A's, do well on your SATs, go to a great college, get a great job, make a lot of money. We're actually taking that notion of success and flipping it over. And we believe that success is broader than that. We believe that success is measured over the course of a lifetime, not at the end of a semester or at the end of when you're 18 as to what college you get into. Um, so that's why it's flipped. We're challenging the, the, the you know, sort of old traditional model of success and saying, that's not real success. Real success is a healthy, creative, passionate, collaborative thinker um, who knows how to do more than um, pass standardized tests. So you mentioned the admissions office, and you and I both know that I have some vicarious history there, right? My father, having been dean of admissions at Stanford when you were admitted, as, as well as when I was admitted. Um, so I know admissions offices get blamed. I, I'm also very interested in the role of parents here. And we talked to Kirsten Olson uh, last week about her book, Wounded by School. And she sort of had this list of things that parents could do, not unlike the list that you provide in both of your white papers for parents. And one of the questions that I have is, to, to what degree are parents complicit in this? Meaning, to what degree are their expectations some of the ones that are driving um, these views of success? Or, or, or um, and, is, and, and is it is it possible that it's um, that the parents are a large part of this? Yes. So we we're now up to working with about a hundred schools, and that translates into thousands and thousands of parents that we've worked with. We also have a survey that we give out to schools, and the students take the survey, and they have to rate how they perceive their parents' expectations. And it depends on middle school versus high school. But at the high school level, many of them in our schools that take the survey feel that they cannot meet the expectations of their parents. And what we know is if you feel you can't meet those expectations, you actually are less healthy. You show greater signs of stress, greater signs of mental issues and whatnot. So we build in parent education because we know that the parents are absolutely a part of the issue here. They're a part of the issue causing stress on their children. They're a part of the issue that is causing schools to actually change some of their policies as they bend in reaction to parents who, who really aren't the experts here. Um, but they they, um, they come in swinging some powerful, uh, you know, clubs, and, um, 
and the schools feel like, well, maybe we should give more homework. You know, even though we know it's developmentally appropriate for a kid not to learn to read until the end of first grade, our parents get uneasy when the kids aren't reading in kindergarten. Maybe we should start having kindergarten feel a lot more like first grade. So what we hear from schools is they're often giving in to parents, and, um, and parents are, are pushing them. Uh, at the very same time, we hear the exact opposite, which parents are saying, you know, the schools aren't listening to us. We want a healthier kid. We want more family time. We want deeper learning. We, don't want, we want less busy work. And so we really hear both sides, which kind of makes us unique because our, the point of our intervention is we get the parents and the kids and the teachers, the administrators, everyone together at our conferences to, to make change. Um, so parent education it plays a very, very important role uh, in helping parents to understand the myths out there that, you know, even just something as simple as it's okay to not know how to read when you enter first grade. It, it could be absolutely developmentally normal, as it was for two of my three kids. Um, and also myths around, you know what, you do have a say in school. You can be an active advocate for your child if something is going on in school that you really believe isn't right. So it goes both ways. So I think I was introduced to you through Vicki Avelli's movie Race to Nowhere. And then we had our interview. And, and so maybe I've been aware of your work for a year and a half to two years. Uh, in that course of time, are, are you seeing changes that you feel are encouraging in terms of um, the results of not only just the results of the work that you're doing, but in terms of the larger um, views on education, or, or how would you characterize the progress that's being made? That's a really good question. I mean, I do see um, changes that are making me optimistic for the future. Um, I do see more people having discussions and dialogue about whole children and what do, what do kids need, not just in terms of academics, but in terms of social and emotional learning. I think the whole world of social and emotional learning um, has become much bigger, and there are more schools focusing on it, and there's a lot more foundation money going towards that. So that is a great thing, right? We, we want to see more so focus on social and emotional learning in schools. We want to see more dialogues around things like creativity, collaboration, you know, 21st century skills. A lot of people are talking about that now. Fewer people are actually doing specific things about that, but I am, you know, buoyed by seeing much more dialogue. I also, quite frankly, am pleased that people are talking about countries like Finland and Singapore, and I have a lot of these students in my graduate courses, you know, from the Ministry of Education at, in Singapore, for instance. Countries that have been focusing on this for a while, that I would say that get it, that know what it means to teach kids to think deeply and critically and how to train teachers to do project-based learning. And I'm really excited to see the new assessments that are supposedly coming out for the Common Core that are going to be much more task-oriented, much less recall memorization-oriented. So I am optimistic um, about about those things that I'm seeing. Um, at the same time, there's just a lot of stuff out there that makes you kind of want to cry. <laughs> so um, that things that we know don't work, um, that people are still kind of pushing and making our schools do. There's a you know value um, uh, value added 
value-based um, teaching metrics where you where you decide the fate of a teacher based on the test scores that his or her kids get. You know, not okay. So it's, it's a mixed it's a mixed bag that I'm seeing. So being in the middle of Silicon Valley, I'm curious as to your perception of the impact of this kind of um, large-scale attention by venture capitalists to education. One of the things that we've talked about on the show is the way the way in which um, building independence and critical thought are not necessarily um, outcomes that give a financial reward to an organization. So a lot of the startups that we see are built around things that um, promise some form of profitability. But is that a fair criticism? Are you seeing things in this focused attention by technology companies on education uh, that make you feel hopeful or discouraged either way? Well, I mean, I do think there's a bunch of people out there who want to make a whole lot of money. Um, and some of them are doing that with maybe not the best interest of the kids at mine, in mind. Some of them are doing that because um, technology and education is really hot right now, and so they, they will say we absolutely have the best interest of the kids at mind, but we also want to, you know, make a ton of money. <laughs> um, so I, you have to be really careful and look beyond. Um, I think there's some really cool programs, and we can go back to the social and emotional learning topic. I mean, there's some cool programs being um, created to help uh, help kids recognize facial expressions when when kids, particularly kids on the spectrum, um, have a hard time doing that. So I think technology and Silicon Valley companies in general, you know, I think ideally everyone has the best interest of the kids at heart. I think you can lose track of that. Um, and you can also get off on fads. I mean, we see that in education all the time. And, you know, even something like the flipped classroom, which I think has a lot of potential when done well, um, we can see that it also does a lot of harm when not done well. Uh, so like anything, you have to be really careful. And I think one of your, your folks wrote here, you know, it's about the teachers and it's about training the teachers. Absolutely. Um, so there's no app or piece of technology that's going to be um, used, you know, that's going to be the panacea without the teachers really understanding deeply what its value is, what its purpose is, and how to use it to be more effective with kids. There was another comment in the chat earlier by Kent who asked about um, how we might expect teachers to have the time and training to give students in the traditional classrooms effective emotional support. It does feel like we're hearing a lot about scaling, especially at the higher ed level with MOOCs, um, and also in terms of even people like Thomas Vander are talking about how technology will reduce the number of teachers needed to help students. Is it your sense that that the technology does actually promise that kind of scaling, or are we missing the boat? Do we need to be thinking more about um, making time for teachers to spend with individual students? I, mean, I think you're always going to need both. Um, I have students right now in my courses that are studying blended learning, which is when kids are, you know, 100 kids in a huge kind of lab, which is a computer lab, and they are working at individual paces. And then there's also, the, the reason why it's called blended, is there's also teachers who are pulling out kids to work in small groups on math when they need some individualized instruction. Um, what I'm finding is, you know, 100 kids in a lab, 
there's a lot of nothing going on in some of those at some of those computers when there's not enough adults really going around and checking and supervising. Um, but even they realize that you need to have these small pullout groups. Um, so I think technology can replace um, some things, but when it comes to the sort of deep um, understanding and rigorous learning and, 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 um, and working in groups and collaborating and, and that kind of stuff, we're always going to need to have some sort of social interaction, whether it's peers to peers or teachers um, to peers. I do want to kind of drill down on the two white papers that are up on the site. Um, but before we do so, I wanted to talk a little bit about policy kind of issues. So you mentioned the debates. I think many of us have watched the debates. And you know, without getting too political here, it feels as though certain things don't get addressed at all, which are, are critical issues. But it also feels like the position of the two parties on education are not that far apart. It, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and talk, talk about, in terms of policy decisions, how would you want us to be thinking about education at a larger policy level? Well, I mean, my colleague Linda Darling Hammond probably could answer this way better than I can, um, but I do subscribe to what she and, and others at, at Stanford School of Education believe, which is, um, you know, and one person, I think Kent just asked why is value-added assessment a bad thing. There's, there's certain things that, that we're seeing happening right now that really need to change. You need to put more resources in toward teacher training and teacher education because at the core, you're always going to need a trained professional cadre of educators. Um, if I could wave a magic wand, we would have much higher standards and higher resources going towards teacher training like they do in some of those countries that I mentioned, Singapore and Finland. I would wave the magic wand and, and really do away with the kind of high-stakes testing that we've seen in the past. The jury is still out for how the new assessments for the Common Core are going to come down, but what we've seen in the past is really these tests are not great at measuring the kind of skills that we want kids to have, and the stakes are so high that they're actually having some um, unintended effects on some really good schools. There's a, there's a great school in my neighborhood that's, you know, been put on probation all the teachers had to be trained in direct instruction, which is really kind of an old school model, to teach to the test. That is exactly the opposite of what should be happening. We want to see much more of the innovative kind of project-based learning, authentic assessment. Um, on our website, we have a little mnemonic aid called SPACE, S-P-A-C-E, the kinds of um, changes we want to see in schools uh, come from those categories, from how kids are using their time, their schedule in school, the project-based learning, the authentic assessment, a climate of care, and educating parents and teachers and kids around that. So that's what I would do with my wand. Um, uh, a lot more resources toward teacher ed, rethinking how we assess and how we hold people accountable, and much more attention to schedule and pace project-based learning, authentic assessment, and mostly a climate of care. I want to ask one question about higher ed. 
um, I recently had a discussion with a young man who's in at a four-year uh, university who's doing a peer tutoring program and I asked him what he does and he says he counsels other students on what activities they need to be involved in to get into graduate school and it never occurred to me that there could be the same kind of sort of inauthentic gaming for graduate school that I sort of associate with high school. Do you find that the students at Stanford are playing a little bit of that game as well? Absolutely. Um, so I, I'm a kind of a regular speaker in the dorms and what we hear from the students is, first of all, they don't have, um, they don't feel like they can really choose the majors that they want to major in because their parents are paying all this money and so they need to ensure that they pick a major that will get them a job when they get out. Um, so, you know, I have kids say, well, I would love to major in English, but which was my major <laughs> at Stanford, but there's just no way. I, I have to be a computer science major. I have to be an engineer. Um, so there's, a, there's definitely playing the game in terms of the major you choose, so you're now not really being authentic to what you would like to major in. Um, but there's also very much playing the game in terms of thinking about graduate school. And um, I'm not going to take this music class because uh, there's a class at Stanford that has a reputation of like no one getting an A in it in the music department. I'm not going to take that with the possibility of ruining my GPA even though it's supposed to be a great class and, you know, I love music. So there's definitely gaming the system all the way up. There, there's gaming the system, you know, if you're an assistant professor and you want to become a full professor. I'm sure there's gaming the system in all kinds of jobs. But what's so sad is this is the time in a child's life where they are allowed to choose, where they're allowed to have this sort of luxury of going deep in, um, in a university with experts who can mentor them, and they're choosing majors based on, you know, well, I'm more likely to, to get a job when I get out or get into grad school with XYZ major. And I understand why they're doing it. I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, Pollyannish or whatever. I mean, obviously, people need to get jobs. but what they're not understanding is, you know, there's a lot of companies out there looking for English majors because they know how to write. So let's let's really get educated about what folks are looking for. Okay, so I read the two uh, white papers that I've just put up on the screen and I put the link in the chat. The first one I read was on the, uh, was the academic integrity or <laughs> the cheating white paper, right? Um, and I think you know, I was kind of stunned. I mean, I'd, I probably should have known some of these statistics, but you know, clearly there's an enormous amount of what we would call cheating going on, right? Yes. <laughs> so it's really sobering. I mean, we we in our own surveys back this up. So you know, nationally, it's about 90% of kids who cheat. Um, in our own survey of 11th and 12th graders, 10,000 kids at high-achieving public and private schools. 95% uh, of them cheated in the past year. Now, to be fair to the kids, um, cheating is measured in ways that sometimes the students themselves don't really think of as cheating. So if you, uh, if your teacher has said, you know, do this work alone and you copy your friend's homework, you know, we count that as cheating in our survey. Well, because it is cheating, but a lot of kids feel like, well, that's just a survival tactic. I wouldn't even count that as cheating. So. The pressure is so high, the exhaustion level is pretty high, um, the expectations on these kids are so high, a lot of them feel they really can't do it on their own, and technology has added to that as well. So, so yeah, it's, it's fairly sobering 
there's a massive cheating problem going on in the U.S. You know, the first thing I thought of was that it's really hard to separate that um, way of viewing schoolwork, which I think I watched in a video that you did, you know, which is sort of um, so this focus on what do I need to do to get an A, not, not what do I need to do to learn, but sort of how do I get to the next levels to get to the to whatever achievement I see as the end goal. It's It was hard for me not to relate that directly to both our economic and political spheres and kind of the modeling and examples we see. Um, I'm not sure you called that out specifically in the white paper, but is that a part of it too, do you think? I mean, we definitely, uh, I think there's one line in the paper where we say, look, they're, they're seeing cheating going on everywhere, you know, in the media, in Hollywood, in sports. There's always somebody being indicted. I mean, Lance Armstrong was the one that just most immediately comes to mind, and my son was just, you know, crushed to hear that. Uh, so you kind of see it, and you definitely see the gaming the system to, you know, I've got to just get through. I've got to do this to get to the next stage. Um, and they don't believe that they see honest role models as much. And certainly in school, they're telling us, well, it's cheat or be cheated. They believe that it's the norm. And I mean, you know, they are right, given the numbers. And so why should I let the cheaters get away with it? Why am I the only chump that's sitting here being honest? You know, and so it, it, it leads to even more kids doing it. So how does this relate to um, other countries? Meaning, we're pretty fixated on these sort of standardized tests. And uh, is, does this relate to assessment methodologies? And in other countries that uh, have different assessment systems, do you find that there's that there? Do you even know if there are different statistics around cheating? That's a really good question. I mean, well, what we do know is in um, the Asian countries, and particularly China, they have extremely high cheating rates. Um, in a lot of things. I mean, even in, in just everyday culture, uh, you know, my daughter is a diver and we had the Chinese team come and they were diving and the kid said, well, which is the judge that you paid? You know, and, and we say, well, no, you don't pay the judges in, in the U.S. So, I mean, I think that's sort of pervasive in some of the, the, the cultures. What, um, what you don't see in Finland, I don't know about Singapore, but what you don't see in Finland is a lot of cheating because there's a lot of collaborative learning. There's a lot of um, uh, uh, time to revise and correct mistakes. It's actually considered normal and, and actually good to make mistakes and learn from them and move on. So it's not so driven on, um, well, I've got to get all the answers right. In fact, when you turn in your homework and you have a lot of answers wrong, that's, that's a sign to the teacher that they've got to kind of do some different teaching. And what happens in the U.S. is the parents correct the kids' homework, so they can't even use it. Teachers can't even use it as a gauge for understanding. So um, I don't know the numbers in some of the, the countries that are trying the innovative practices besides Finland. I do know in some of the Asian countries the cheating rates are extremely high as well. I think we need a term for the constant kind of revering of Finland. I certainly am guilty of this, right, which is I'm constantly kind of pointing to Finland on homework and school time and teacher pay and <laughs> everything else. It's, uh, uh, it's almost like uh, we need some phrase that we can use to identify, well, that we're going to use Finland as an example. Um, is that an appropriate 
do you think of it, our focus on Finland is appropriate? Well, I mean, yeah, Finland envy, right? Well, I mean, there's definitely people, and myself included, who say, look, it's a very small country. It's very homogenous. Um, it's, it's, it's quite unfair when people make comparisons. I do think we can learn from some of their very impressive models. We already are learning that contingencies are going from Stanford to Finland and back and forth. You know, already this time, this time of year, several trips have been taken. But um, I think you do have to have a grain of salt and say, look, very different country in terms of makeup and diversity, uh, economy, et cetera. So we can learn from some of their models. We, we cannot just simply take and um, import it directly into, into what we do in the, in the U.S. There's, there's got to be ways that we tweak it and make it our own. Um, but but uh, it's pretty darn impressive. Okay, back to cheating. There were some other pieces here that were very interesting to me, one of which was our uh, potential misperceptions around gender and cheating, right? Right. So, you know, I don't there, – it, it, it used to be that people would say, well, who cheats more, the boys or the girls, right? And um, it, some people have this conception that it's – it's, you know, well, boys cheat, well, girls don't cheat. Well, I mean, it's really hard to find good data on some of this. We, in our particular study, we have um, girls and boys cheating pretty much at the same rate. We have honors and AP students cheating almost as much as the kids who get the low grades. Um, and we have kids who, you know, you would never think that they would cheat. They're, they're uh, in student government. They're... Um, they're, they're athletes, they're sort of the superstars of the school, they're the valedictorians, and they are also caught cheating. So I do think we, though it's hard to find exact numbers, especially on the gender question, we do, we do have several misconceptions out of there around uh, who cheats. Okay, and at the end of this, at the end of both white papers, you have this sort of beautiful summary of things that both uh, educators and parents can do. With regard to cheating, what are some of the recommendations that you make both for educators and parents? I think the, the biggest thing that has to happen is buy-in around this notion of integrity and honest academic practices. So both at school and at home, you have to send very, very clear messages um, and dialogue that uh, that cheating is not okay, that we have, that, that, you know, we will not abide by it, that it will be punished, and you need to have some very clear, um, consistent policies around how you do that. But underneath that, so that's just sort of a basic, but underneath that is a much deeper point, which is this emphasis of mastery as opposed to performance and grades. So this notion of why are we doing it, what's the purpose of learning, we want to get across to kids that it's not about the grade or the score, but it's much more important that they understand it deeply. And this might mean that you have to change your curriculum, that you need to focus much more on project and problem-based learning, that you um, give kids multiple ways to show what they know, because not everybody is going to be able to show what they know on a paper and pencil test. Um, you're not going to get at that deep kind of nuanced understanding that, that we want. Um, and I have a phrase that I talk about, um, revision and redemption. 
Because in the real world, you get to revise over and over again. You don't turn in finished product without showing it to someone first. You're never told in the real world, guess what, we're going to have a high stakes assessment tomorrow. Um, Steve, your job is going to depend on it. You can't use any of the resources that you're used to using around you. It's going to be timed, and I'm not going to tell you what's on it. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, right? <laughs> but that is what happens to kids four or five times a week. So it's really getting out of this um, test mentality and this grade and performance mentality and really focusing on, gosh, what's the best way that we can make sure that every kid understands deeply? Um, that means really changing our our assessments and changing as parents how we talk about grades. And even last night, you know, my kids were talking about their grades because this is the end of the, um, like, quarter. They send out comment cards. And my son is saying, you know, I have an A in this and I have an A minus in this and da, da, da. And finally I just said my, my line that I say over and over again, it's not about the grade, it's about the learning. And my kids kind of compared that back to me because I say it so much in the house. I'm thrilled when he's doing well, but what's, you know, what that's supposed to show is deep understanding. When he takes a test, I don't say, how'd you do on the test? I say, what'd you think? Was it a fair test? Did you get to showcase what you know? Did you understand what you got wrong? That's way more important than what grade. And I'm reminded as a parent of just how much harder that is. You know, I sometimes feel as though the, sh the, the shortcuts of grades and control are essentially that they're shortcuts just because the what you've just described there takes so much more time. It's much harder for the teachers and for the parents, um, especially if you have a kid who's completely bombing, right? I mean, it's, it's, um, it's really hard to take a step back and say, okay, what does a grade mean versus, you know, does he understand? What, what's, what's happening here so we can prevent this from, from happening again in the future? And also because grades do mean things in terms of getting into college. So we're back to college admissions, right? Even in third grade, we have parents panicking that they're going to fail the spelling test, and that's going to affect them later on in life. Um, it's not. You can fail a spelling test. You can fail every spelling test. You can fail third grade um, and still be a success in life. Um, so <laughs> one of the stories I tell when I do my talks for parents is of this kid who failed out of a Catholic high school. All boys, he failed out. His dad was having a heart attack, as you can imagine. He took the GED, so he got a high school diploma, and he went to community college, which in my neighborhood is considered basically failing anyway, which is very sad because it's not true. But anyways, this kid fails out of community college. The dad says, well, if you're going to be living under my roof, you've got to get a job. He gets a job in construction. He's miserable. He goes back to community college, and he makes a connection with one of the professors there. And it happens to be a chemistry professor. It turns out this kid really likes chemistry. He never knew that before. He never had the chance to discover that before. And he gets a good grades. He transfers to the University of California, Santa Barbara, and graduates with honors from there. And the reason I know his story is he's at Stanford getting his Ph.D. in chemistry. So, you know, you can fail out of high school. You can fail out of community college, and you can still be a success um, in life. And if you think of the big picture, this kid has found his passion. He found what he really likes to do. He's good at it. He's had some great mentors, and he never would have discovered that if he had just kind of slogged through that Catholic boys' school with, you know, C's and, and B's. Uh, it kind of took failing to turn him on. 
So that's an important lesson for parents around academic integrity that, you know, even if the kid gets caught cheating, you don't want to say, please don't punish him, please don't punish him, this is going to ruin his college career. You want to teach the much bigger lesson about honesty because you're after uh, raising a healthy 35-year-old, not, uh, not giving that 18-year-old a path to continue to do, you know, dishonest work. I love that story, I think in part because it really plays well with some of the things we've talked about in terms of agency and self-direction. And in order for somebody to become kind of self-directed, they often have to um, be willing to abandon other people's expectations or, or, or have, make a mistake or fail or move on so that they can actually figure out what it is that they care about. And that's hard both as an educator and a parent, I think, sometimes to do. Well, and here's the other thing that I love, and you guys can go online and look this up. Stanford now has a project, and we, we got this idea from Harvard, to be fair, called the Successful Failure Project, which I just love. What they did is they asked a bunch of professors and leaders at Stanford to talk about their biggest failure, the, the, the biggest disappointment or mistake or failure that they made, and how they got over it and how they overcame it and, and what it did for them and their personality. So college students, and it's, I think parts of it are open to the public, I know parts of it are open to the public, can go on and they can see, you know, like your hero, you know, professor so-and-so talking about how he, you know, his major paper that ended up helping him get tenure got turned down by 15 journals before anyone would even look at it, and it took him five years to get it published. You know, like these, these are the things that people need to hear that, Superstars don't just walk on this, you know, easy path to success that you're really making mistakes, you're really using them to learn, and that's what's helping to shape your career, your life, your, your, your resilience, um, who you are as a person. So I'm going to go back on the website to the page that talks about why this is important. And, and obviously we face really significant challenges um, both in the United States and worldwide that, that are going to require, um, you know, intelligence, passion, interest, care, concern, and the like. Do you find that you ever give this message to a group of teachers or parents and they just don't agree? Does that ever happen or do they, when you, when you give this as a talk or you're going out to visit, do people generally at some level know this is true or do you ever meet that resistance of we just don't agree with this philosophy? I definitely get pushback. Um, a lot of times I have to admit I'm, I'm sort of preaching to the converted. If they come to one of my talks, they're, they're usually bought in, kind of like your, um, your listeners here as I read the chat room. <laughs> you know, but but um, I do get pushback from people who say, you know, wait a minute. Um, you're, you know, are you saying that grades and test scores aren't important? Don't you think we need to show that we can compete with other countries? Or, um, you know, I was stressed when I was younger and I was pushed and I turned out okay. And what they're not understanding is it's a different world now from when they were growing up, um, that there's a lot of different pressures on kids these days, both global, economic, you know, sort of everyday world pressures on top of um, a real change in schools and how schools function uh, in terms of standardized tests and high-stakes testing and the lack of resources. Um, so 
it's usually because they don't understand what's going on currently in the world of education and they haven't really hit it with their own kids yet. Um, oftentimes it's elementary parents who don't get it because they haven't hit the craziness of middle school and high school yet. Um, so yeah, there are definitely people who disagree, um, you know, and you can tell that by some of the, the policy um, and actions that have been taken by the administration that, that, there, that those people don't agree. So um, yes, I face opposition. Is there a story that you like to tell or a way you like to introduce the topic that you feel like invites a better receptivity to your ideas? Well, I think, you know, there's a couple of stories that I tell, and I'll just tell one here because, you know, people have this um, sort of infatuation with Silicon Valley right now, right? So I happen to live on the street um, two doors down from the house where Steve Jobs grew up, where the original computer was created and, and, and his garage is still there. And we get tour buses on the street all the time, people taking pictures. And, and the guy who lived across the street, original owner from Steve when Steve was growing up, was a friend of ours. And he said, you know, Steve was in that garage all the time. He was tinkering. He, was, he had the time to make mistakes, to watch computers, you know, blow up, to call us all in and show us something, only to find out that it didn't work at all. And he would sit there, he would play guitar, and he would work on the computer. And he said, my grandchildren, this is the guy across the street, they don't have that kind of time. They go to flute lessons. They go to soccer. They have hours of homework. They are overscheduled. They don't have the time or really the desire or passion that Steve had. Um, and so, you know, we're not going to have this next generation of innovators, these outside-the-box thinkers that we really need, given the complexity of the problems in this world. We don't even know the skills our kids are going to need because we don't know the problems they're going to face. But what we do need is kids who want to learn, who know how to learn, who have the passion to kind of go for it and think outside the box. And he said, you know, in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of people who are saying, yes, sir, yes, sir. It's really hard to teach creativity and passion, communication skills, um, a desire to keep learning. You can teach content skills, but you want to teach people who are resilient, who who are like Steve Jobs, who are, who are willing to just go out there and, and risk it to, um, to really innovate. So that's, that's a story that usually gets some of these people are saying, well, you know, we need them to go out there and make money. Well, you need some innovative thinkers, and our current education is not, our system is not set up to, to provide that. I would imagine that that story also plays well into the homework concept and the degree to which homework often displaces potentially other potentially valuable activities. Absolutely. And, you know, we do, we do whole workshops for teachers on how to create more effective homework assignments. Um, but I think the research in our white paper is pretty clear that in elementary school, there's really not a whole lot of research out there that shows there's any effect uh, of homework on, on academic achievement. And so if you took all those 5 to 11-year-olds out there and told them that their afternoons were completely free and all you wanted them to do was to do some free reading at night because that is tied to academic achievement, um, 
we can really focus on getting kids to be creative, on getting kids to have social and emotional skills, on learning how to get along. On, um, we, we'd lower the obesity factor in our country because they'd be outside playing and moving their bodies. I mean, there's a lot of things that would change if people would just listen to the research on elementary school homework. And by that same token, since my kids are now older in middle school and high school, listen to the limits that we know, um, you know, at some point after two hours, the effects of homework really are minimal. So let your high schooler have, you know, his or her life as well to do all sorts of things um, instead of slogging through these assignments. So we've probably got time for a few questions, but I also want to give you a chance to kind of do a sales pitch for challenge success because you do you you do a number of things that people might be interested in. So let's let's have you go ahead and just sort of talk about the kinds of things that people could ways in which they could follow up with challenge success if their institution or um, they, they themselves are interested in learning more. And while Denise is doing that, if you have a question for her that came up in the chat that we didn't ask or you want to raise your hand, please feel free to do so, and we'll, we'll take a few questions. So Denise, tell us, uh, give us the sales pitch. Okay, first of all, thank you so much, because my ED will love you right now. Um, we offer a lot of different resources for folks, and it, it's really um, pretty easy to find when you go on the, the home page of the web. If you are a school or you are an educator, you can come to our conferences. Um, our next conference is actually next weekend in Chicago, but um, you can, which is full, unfortunately, although the Friday night, November 2nd, for anyone who's in around the Chicago, is open to the public and, and Ken Ginsburg and Madeline Levine and I will be speaking and we have people text in their answers. So if you're a school, we offer our conferences and that's a very in-depth way. We give you a coach, you send a team, and you work on an action plan for change at your school to improve engagement with learning, to change some of the policies and practices around academic integrity and homework and things that are, are causing um, kids to not be as engaged as they should be and as healthy as they should be. If you're a teacher, we offer professional development workshops in homework, around homework and teaching for engagement, um, academic integrity, and we have podcasts online for free that you can click on right there that Steve just put up, yeah. Um, and it'll show you what other schools have done around changing, like changing from a traditional schedule to block schedule, for instance. If you are um, a parent, we offer a lot of resources as well. So if you're a parent, we offer online classes on raising kids in a fast-paced world, which you can do from the comfort of your living room. Um, we have live courses that we put on in different areas across the country, and you can look um, and learn more about that. And then we have these things called FAQs, which are videos. We just put on our preschool video FAQ today. We just put it up. But these are like, what do I do if my kid wants to get a tattoo? Or what do I do if I find my 16-year-old making out with her boyfriend when I come home from work? Like questions that people are afraid to ask out loud, but we, um, all of these things are research-based. We sort of translate the research for you and answer those questions. And the last thing we have are, are yep, that's the FAQs right there. The last thing we have is our white papers that, that Steve was referring to. We um, sort of summarize the research for you. So we have um, a do you know section with lots of facts around sleep and cheating and all sorts of stuff. And then we have these white papers that we put out. The next one is gonna, that's coming out is going to be on APs 
and um, really kind of solving that debate, are they worth it or not? So those are just a, a kind of a, the different things we offer to the different educators and families. So how does a Stanford professor uh, manage this kind of activity? Does this uh, fall, is this independent work? Does it uh, tie into your Stanford work at all? Just as a curiosity, um, how does that relationship work? So that's tricky, right? <laughs> I, I, I basically am considered part-time at Stanford and part-time at Challenge Success. Um, it's very hard to get tenure um, if you're out leading conferences and, and putting on videos for parents. Um, it's not necessarily considered tenure-worthy, so I'm not on the tenure track um, by choice because I'm much more about um, practice and, and helping make a real difference. Not that my colleagues don't help make a real difference. Um, most of us at the School of Education are involved with changing practice and policy in some way. Um, because I do this 50% of the time, I could not focus as well as on being a tenure track professor. Plus, having three kids and a husband who works, it just it just wouldn't work. So this works for me. I get to do what I love and also teach and do research um, for publication at Stanford for half the time. So have you read Tony Wagner's newest book on uh, creating innovators? I definitely have talked with Tony and know what's in the book, but I have not read the book. So one of the most intriguing aspects of that book was his description of those um, educators at, at higher ed institutions who had made the most difference for the students were typically those who are having the hardest time keeping their jobs. And he, he mentions one fellow uh, at Stanford in particular who's in the engineering school or, or you know, in some ways had an enormous impact on a number of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, but scrambles every year to get um, funding to keep to stick around. Do you th uh, you haven't read it obviously, so you won't know the nuances here. But do you think that there is some fairness in uh, that as a criticism in terms of higher ed that oftentimes those who contribute the most aren't really doing things that are tenure track? Yeah, I mean that's a whole other show that we would have to do, Steve, which is sort of the problems of higher ed, um, for sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have people coming up to me and, you know, I have grad students who are female saying, well, you have three kids and you managed to do this at Stanford and you're still working with schools, you know, how do you do it all? Well, I don't do it all. I'm not on the tenure track. It's very hard to do these things if you are on the tenure track. So um, even though higher ed institutions want folks to really make a difference, outside that institution, they certainly make it hard to do so with the criteria that are currently in place for tenure. So maybe we leave it at that. Uh, Denise, as a courtesy, we always finish on time. So I really want to thank you for being here. Uh, I'm clapping. I'm hovering over the smiley face and going to the hard to find applause button. Uh, really fun to get to know you even a little bit more. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's been a pleasure. It is always a pleasure. Uh, coming up tomorrow night, Jamie McMillan on Legendary Learning, Famous Homeschoolers, and then next week, Cal Newport. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks again to Denise. Take care. Bye now.